with Drafting Archetypes, and this week I'm going to be discussing White Black in Lord of the Rings Limited. For uh, patrons, you can follow along with my notes at uh, patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. And getting into it, white-black is the second best performing color combination in this format on 17 lands after uh, red-black. As far as my opinion on what white-black is doing and its uh, position in the format, I think that white-black is fundamentally an attrition deck. But I also think that it wants to be more proactive rather than purely reactive. I think the basic idea is to use Tempt on small creatures to make your opponent find ways to answer those small creatures as, like, they'll have difficulty blocking them and the creatures will represent, like, a relevant threat because of the looting and potential three extra life loss. And then your opponent attempting to answer those, like, small ring bearers will generally happen in a way that's going to be card or mana negative for them because you typically don't have to spend an entire card to get that like token that can be a ring bearer. I talked uh, previously about how for several of the green decks I think of them as big proactive which I mentioned is pretty similar to what most people refer to as mid-range in that you're like playing large creatures and attacking with them, but you still have to like play a defensive enough game and rely on some removal to get to the point where you can like get your big creatures to stick and then have removal to disrupt like your opponent's ability to profitably double block them. And so you end up playing kind of like a, you know, mid-range interactive game of magic where you're like the beatdown against some players and have an ability against other players. White-black I would describe as small proactive, which is similarly mid-range in that it can end up in a similar situation where you need to figure out what your role is and it can change from match to match, but different in that you're kind of attacking at the beginning of the game, you're focused more on having a low curve, but at the same time, you're not quite like an aggro deck in that you're not trying to end the game quickly. You're fundamentally like on the attrition end of the like tempo attrition spectrum. It can be kind of weird to think of yourself as like an aggressive attrition deck because typically aggression tries to end the game quickly, meaning that you're winning while your opponent still has unused resources, meaning that you're like taking advantage of tempo elements. But here you're like trying to apply early pressure, but you're not really doing it to win the game early. You're doing it to put your opponent out of position to force them into a spot where they need to respect these like small creatures that you didn't invest very much in or that like give you value when they die or something to make them use their cards less efficiently to optimize your ability to play an attrition game. So you're using your opponent's life total as a resource to impact the positioning of cards and how well they can line their cards up against your opponents. And so uh, it's a little tricky, a little bit unusual in terms of strategic positioning. And uh, yeah, a lot of this comes down to white-black. So white-black uses the ring in a way that is unique and that other sets don't offer the ring, but in a way that's like pretty classically black-white. If you think of black-white as often having kind of like the 
a strategy that really was like kind of uh, most explicitly pioneered in Ravnica, the like nickel and dime your opponent strategy, uh, where you just have like a lot of ways to incidentally make your opponent lose life over the course of a game. And so like their life total matters, but it's not like, you know, an alpha strike that uh, will make your opponent lose their life. It's kind of just like consistently getting in for a few points a turn, which the ring lets you do in a way where like in other sets, white black would be doing it with some kind of creature that makes your opponent lose life or an evasive creature in white black you need to rely on the ring tempts you to get most of that as a good rate there are some flyers but you really want to combine them with uh the ring tempt if you can especially because you know you don't have a lot of raw, raw card advantage and if you're not taking advantage of the looting from the ring um, in this format when you don't have a bunch of like card draw, it's going to be really hard for you to play an attrition game because you're just going to flood out relative to your opponent. So you're really taking advantage of the ring mechanic, but in a way that I see as like pretty classically white black. So what that means is that like when you're drafting, you really want to prioritize the two things that white and black does well, which is tempt and token making because you want to have you know you make tokens and then you tempt them and then your opponent has to like interact with those tokens so tempt kind of allows you to convert those tokens into full cards and a vast majority of the cards that happen to be good in white black just like the cards that are uh efficient on rate in some way do one of those things that you know there are a lot of good cards that follow the formula like is a creature and tempts you or is a creature and makes a token or is a removal spell and tempts you or is a removal spell and makes a token or something. I guess the interesting thing when you're drafting is figuring out to what extent you're focusing on tempt, to what extent you are focusing on tokens, and then to what extent these things are like one direction or the other versus to what extent you want a mix of them to combine in the way that I'm talking about. And I think that depending on exactly which cards you have, you can end up in a space where you're really all the way on tempt or all the way on tokens or a harmonious combination of tempt and tokens. And as the draft, like as you go through the draft, you kind of like figure out where you are there and how these cards are interacting. But as with some other decks in this format i think that it's like pretty clear which the good cards are right like i i didn't want to devote a lot of this episode to talking about like okay the best black commons are claim the precious which is the three mana removal spell that tempts followed by crabane which is the three mana one one flyer that amasses two followed by Torment of Gollum, which is the four mana sorcery that makes your opponent discard and amasses two, etc. And like the best white cards are Errand Rider of Gondor, the three mana three two that draws a card, and then if you don't have a legend, you have to put a card from your hand on the bottom of your deck. Followed by Protector of Gondor, the three mana three three that makes it one one. Followed by East Farthing Farmer, the three mana two three that makes a food. It's easy. It's really easy to just like look at 17 lands and sort the commons by game and hand win rate and see which ones are the good ones. Where I think drafting white black gets interesting is 
really understanding your role and which synergies to look for and how to modify how you're prioritizing kind of the intermediate cards as a function of trying to figure out like what your plan is and how you're going to expect it to line up with the other decks in the format. For example, the more tempt you have, the more you can take advantage of Errand Rider of Gondor, the 3-2 that wants a legend so that you get to keep an extra card, and uh, Haunt of Dreadmarshes, the 1-mana one 1-1 one that scries when it enters the battlefield, and then if you control a legendary creature, you can spend 2 and a black to return it from your graveyard to play. While if you have more tokens, you can take better advantage of Lash of the Balrog, the black uh, sorcery, that kills a creature and it costs four extra mana or sacrifice a creature uh, to cast it. Hobbit Sting, um, one in a white instant that does damage equal to the number of creatures and food you control to target creature. Uh, uncommons like Gothmog, the 3-3 amass one that gives your tokens death touch. Rosy Cotton, the uh, uncommon 1-1 one -one that makes a food and then whenever you make a to uh, token you get to put a plus one plus one counter on another creature. And Sirith Ungle Patrol, the five mana four five orc that you can spend one and tap this to sacrifice another creature to draw a card and make a food so you know you you want to pay attention to you know which of these kind of more conditional cards you can take advantage of based on how like wide you're going with tokens and how uh i don't know deep down the ring path you're going with tempt so uh, i think you really want to among the token situation Obviously, you know, there are creature tokens and food tokens and some other tokens, but those are the main ones that you're going to be running into in black-white. And you want to pay attention to uh, your possible food synergies in particular. If you have Hobbit Sting and East Farthing Farmer, then you might actually want Lembus, where Lembus in general isn't going to be very good. If you have, like, multiple farmers with other good food sources so that your farmers are independently high-impact, then slip on the ring. The one in a white flicker that tempts you becomes very good, ties you back into the temp stuff that you're looking to do, and turns uh, the farmer into a really good combat trick or something that can just push a bunch of damage. Th those are, you know, kind of the like cards that's that have more contextual power level that you want to be like modifying how highly you're prioritizing as a function of tracking your relative quantities of uh, attempt and token making. White Black has a lot of very strong um, uncommons. I know like when I was talking about green, I talked about how green kind of struggled there in terms of finding cards in its color that were good enough to function as like real payoffs for being green. White-Black doesn't have that issue. There are a lot of really good uncommons in both white and black. And almost more importantly, a vast majority of them tempt and or make tokens. So they're all really on plan. Nazgul, uh, the three mana one two that uh, tempts and grows whenever it tempts and technically pumps all your wraiths. Shadow Summoning, the white-black uncommon two-mana that makes two one-one tapped flying uh, spirit tokens, obviously makes tokens. Gollum, the three-one that tempts and it dies, and you could sacrifice something to return it to play, tempts you and also works well with tokens so that you can sacrifice things to get it back more easily. Voracious Fell Beast, the six-mana four-four that makes your opponent sacrifice and makes a food, has some small food synergy there with making the food. Denethor, the 2-4 that lets you sacrifice something and then makes a token at your end step if something died. Obviously, token synergies and creates tokens. Golem's Bite, the uh, black 
two mana instant target creature gets minus two minus two and then you can exile to tempt contributes of course to tempt uh samwise the stout-hearted um the two one flash that returns something that died to your hand and tempts tempts energy this is a deck that can splash because you're kind of playing longer games uh since you're like on the attrition end of things and you uh, presumably have tempt to like fix your mana but you have a lot of power and synergy in your colors so if you're in an open lane you should kind of be good without needing the splash you do want to keep an eye on it because there are some really good uncommons that you can splash but when you're thinking about splashing you really want to make sure that the stuff that you're taking is both powerful and synergistic because like white and black have so many things that are certain other uh, color combinations in this format that offer uh, like build around mechanics that I would describe as traps. Doing their thing isn't really good and you shouldn't really focus on it. White black I don't think is a trap. White black I think offers you two different paths that are both actually good and worth doing and synergize well. That said I want to mention that so you're an attrition deck which means that you're fundamentally like a small game deck, right? You want to trade resources and um, you want to like make these like extra one ones that you're creating as high impact as possible. You want like ways to push your ring bearers through and stuff. So like generally removal is very good for you. Um, uh, also Torment of Golem is another small game card that, um, you know, kind of functions similarly to a removal spell. Um, so like outside of your explicit synergy stuff, um, you also want to be prioritizing removal. So, you know, as far as like rounding your deck out when you're into kind of the like lower tier of cards, you'd be better off playing something like a, um, knife wound, the two mana black aura that gives something minus three power. And then your opponent has to pay two life for, uh, exile it is going to be a better fit than um, something like Warg, the kind of like uh, the menace 4-5 creature that like doesn't really have any particular synergies with white and black. If you're going to play kind of like a lower end playable, not card advantage, non-synergistic card, you'd rather it be a mediocre removal spell than a mediocre creature. Because you're an attrition deck and because you want small games, you need to be really careful about cards like Esquire of the King and Now for Wrath, Now for Ruin that generally look like cards that a token deck might want, but that I think White Black very rarely wants because while you can have like a lot of token stuff, I think strategically you are not very well positioned to try to play the like aggressive go wide big game strategy that those cards want i think you're going to have a lot more success with white black if you focus more on uh really leaning into the small game attrition elements and avoiding cards like esquire the king and now for wrath now for ruin even though now for wrath now for ruin reads like a card that was synergized well with making a lot of tokens and having a lot of tempt. I think it's just like the wrong direction strategically for what the deck should be trying to do. Some other cards that you should avoid. Uh, Mirkwood Bats are another card that kind of seem like they might have a lot of synergy, but the rate is just not good. You don't want to invest four mana in a three toughness creature 
that doesn't give you any immediate value or uh, build on any of your synergies. It's just a payoff for doing a lot of one of the things that you can do, right? Like it's a payoff for tokens, but not a payoff for tempt. And it's a relatively slow and relatively low impact payoff for most of the kind of token stuff that you're realistically going to be doing. And the creature is just kind of like fragile and not really... It, it it's it's just not a good card um in the format so yeah that's another one that you want to avoid yeah that's that's really what i had to say about white black i think there's some pretty interesting stuff going on in this uh archetype in terms of your strategic positioning being like fairly nuanced and i think that putting this uh episode together and kind of thinking through what was going on here really helped clarify some stuff for me i know that like i personally had felt a little uncomfortable with black white i'd had some decent experiences with it but i didn't feel like i knew precisely what i was like really trying to do with it until i sat down and thought about it so hopefully i've managed to like communicate all of that in a way that's uh resonated for at least some portion of you so with that said no new patrons this week if you would like to fix that for next week uh i'd love some people to uh shout out so check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes to um support the program and see uh what kind of benefits we offer incidentally if uh you know subscribing to a patreon is not for you or the the benefits aren't what you're looking for or whatever you certainly can still uh support the podcast by uh leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to uh this on um comment on youtube or what what have you tweeting about you know any thoughts you have on the podcast anything you've learned from it any of that stuff you know uh sharing the podcast does help the podcast i don't mention that very often maybe i should all that said we're gonna turn this over to questions from chat is Lembus bad in black-white for similar reasons as Nasty End? Also, the blue-white two-drop enough on plan to warrant uh, committing to splashing. So, yeah, I do think that Lembus has the same kind of issue as Nasty End, that, like, you really want to kind of, like, uh, come out early and you're looking to spend your mana efficiently to uh, pressure their life total early on. Um, I'm obviously someone who, if you've watched my streams much, you know I play Lembus, I think, significantly more than the average player. I typically like it. So a lot of what's going on is you have enough food in white-black that, like, you have access to life gain anyway. And so, like, life gain has diminishing returns, and it has even more diminishing returns when it's, like, the ability to spend mana to gain life, right? Like, if you have two food lying around and you're just, like, looking for an opportunity to, like, actually cash that in for life... Making another food with Lembus isn't really going to help you out there. So unless you have things that count your food, like Farmer and Sting, then uh, Lembus is really offering you very little relative to what it's offering in other decks, especially other decks like Blue and Red, where you have uh, cards that let you get significantly deeper into your deck so that you like, draw the Lembus more often in a spot where you otherwise can't really gain life. You're kind of like missing out on a lot of the upside while also not really needing the like, you know, the, the benefits are well into like your diminishing returns kind of space. 
and uh, yeah, so that's that's why it's a bad fit. And then about the blue light two drop, I would say it's very much on plan in that you know you want to be tempting and you want to be making tokens. The issue with it is that splashing a two drop is pretty difficult. If your mana can allow you to reliably cast it early, uh, it would be like a fine thing to include. But I wouldn't want to like go far out of my way to like play enough fixing in a white black deck to play this like tutu that is giving me like a decent reward, but a reward that I can get from other cards. So I, I don't think that I would generally expect like. I I wouldn't be looking at uh, Prince Amrahill as a card to try to find a way to get into my deck um, when I'm playing White Black. What would you prioritize as Curve Topper slash Late Game? So because you're, you know, this kind of like small ball attrition grindy deck, I'm not necessarily prioritizing having Curve Toppers slash Late Game. I would say like the ideal late game is really something like Denethor. But if you are going to be thinking about that kind of space, Voracious Fell Beast is obviously a good expensive white black card. And, uh, you know, it's Eagles and Trolls obviously work reasonably well in that space. Yeah, I, I think rather than like just listing expensive creatures that exist, uh, you know, you can't, I guess the answer is you can have something kind of grindy like the 4-3 Tempt White Creature or the 4-5 um, Patrol in Black that can kind of like let you pivot into a little bit more of a grindy deck. And then you can have like a really good top end card like Fell Beast. And then you can have Land Cyclers that you just start casting. But for the most part, I think that you shouldn't prioritize like having a top end finisher. You should prioritize having, you know, evasive threats and tempt and ability to just kind of like grind your opponent out with small stuff and then your kind of like late game is just have enough removal to kill your opponent's late game are there any situations where you'd want multiple nasty ends in white black or otherwise um probably like i said i think nasty end is you know it's okay you just need to be careful about making sure that you still have pressure or that your deck really can play kind of the like blue style game that it positions you to play. Certainly it's better if you have like multiple uh, uncommon golems or um, some other way to uh, have like a legend that's like pretty cheap to sacrifice or good access to tempt. Sideboarding in against people who are playing Fog on the Baradowns type cards, of course, uh, would be a reason. Or against uh, Gandalf sanctions, so you can sacrifice a creature in response to like functionally counter the Gandalf sanctions. It's not generally something I'm like looking to do. Yeah, so this question is, uh, how often do you go for a token strategy? I feel the tokens are a bit of a gamble in the draft since you need the tokens and the payoff but maybe tokens is the wrong way to think about the draft. I think this kind of highlights what I was talking about with Esquire the King and Now for Wrath, Now for Ruin, which is that I don't think you should really think of it as just like you're trying to be a token deck in the like classic go-wide sense. You're trying to have some tokens to like, as your kind of like way to pull ahead in a small game um, and as a way to have like good creatures uh, to tempt. I think that like, you know, if you just like take a protector of Gondor, 
it's not really a risky pick in that like the protector of Gondor is just going to be like a reliable card that offers what your white black deck is looking for being a card that just kind of like gives you some extra value has synergy with you know lash of the balrog and hobbit sting and uh all that other random stuff um and it's not like you need to get like a bunch of other token makers for that card to work where you're looking for if the way that you're thinking of tokens is uh kind of the like big game pump my team stuff that's where you know if you're prioritizing Escort of the king and now for eth now for ruin that's where you're going to run into oh these didn't really come together because they're trying to play a game plan that isn't the game plan that most of the white black cards are trying to play and that's where you're going to feel like there was a gamble that didn't pay off um so be sure that you're approaching tokens in with kind of a small game mindset which admittedly makes hobbit sting a risky proposition because hobbit sting really wants a wide board for it to work unless you're good at making food and then you acknowledge oh i have hobbit sting in my deck i need to like not sacrifice this food when i have spare mana unless my life total is really in danger is shadow summoning worth a pack one pick one over decent monocolored cards in a weak pack yeah i mean it depends on a lot of factors it depends on how good the monocolored cards are and how much you like white black uh honestly really does matter a lot because um if you don't like white black very much you're going to be looking to pivot off of it whereas like if you want if you do like white black you'd be likely to like pivot into it if you took a monocolor like a white card over it and then there's this like shadow summoning that someone else has at the table and now you're fighting someone i, I do think a lot of like should you take a gold card comes down to like personal drafting styles and preferences and archetype preferences but i think that like shadow summoning uh is a strong enough card to take early in draft round if you're someone who is inclined toward what it offers you how high would you prioritize land cyclers in a grindy deck like uh black white my guess is uh lower than tempt and removal but higher than the rest yeah i mean um i think in general with land cyclers they're kind of like they're not transformative in most decks, but they make your deck in general just like a little bit better. And so I like them over any kind of replacement level card, but I don't like them as much as like really high impact cards. They can go up a lot if I have Sam's Desperate Rescue because Sam's Desperate Rescue is like a pretty efficient tempt card, which I could be wanting in white black. And I might need some land cyclers to be able to reliably use it to get the tempt when I want to. Um, and so in that spot, I'm going to prioritize land cyclers unusually highly. But if I don't have Sam's Desperate Rescue or, and I don't expect to get them, then I'm going to take like the premium synergistic cards, like say uh, the three mana, three, two orc that tempts when it enters the battlefield and better. But something worse than that, even say like farmer and worse, then I might start thinking about the land cyclers. When drafting, do you prioritize taking black cards over slightly better white cards because black is so cut? For example, would you consider taking uh, Muster over Errand Rider? No. I think that the way that you should respond to a color being cut is to prioritize it less rather than more. If you see or expect that white is open, you should lean into taking white cards and then potentially pivot off of black rather than like 
taking the black cards early, being committed, seeing that you aren't getting uh, any black cards late, and then being stuck. A color being open makes all of its cards implicitly a little bit better, because you can uh, get them at a lower cost, which means even in the early picks, you're getting the other cards that work with them at a lower cost. Whereas, you know, yeah, like if you're just like afraid that black is going to be cut, um, and so you're like, well, I need to like get in early or I won't get in. I think that like just kind of doubling down and positioning yourself to fight for it is a needless risk. I like to, you know, go in when I'm getting cards like at their appropriate pick or later rather than like taking cards early to put myself into a color that might not be open. My black decks are always happy to have multiple Sam's Desperate Rescue, because Sedition, Tempt, etc. Uh, do I see it as a top common in the archetype, slash how highly do I take it? Yeah, my only concern with it is the idea that I might not have a creature in my graveyard, because like you don't have Quarrel's End to like discard creatures, and while you can discard creatures to Tempt, it's kind of putting the cart before the horse or something, right? Like, if you need the rescue to get to tempt but you need temp to turn on the rescue like you can just end up failing to like get your stuff going so that's why how much i prioritize it is really like a function of how many land cyclers i have and failing that you really want to think about like whether your creatures are the sort that are going to trade off early or not for example it might seem like oh Sam's Desperate Rescue is really good with Took Reaper because I want to trade off Took Reaper and then I get to like tempt off the Reaper and then get it back with Rescue and then get to tempt off of that and then maybe get to tempt again off the Reaper. But in practice, your opponent doesn't actually want to trade with Reaper. So it ends up just kind of like hanging out in play and not letting you use the Rescue. Where if instead that were like the 3 1, uh, the Westfield Rider or whatever it's called, the 3 1 that can sack to kill an artifact or enchantment. That card can more or less always trade off if you want to, and so it's actually better at enabling Sam's Desperate Rescue than the Took Reaper is. So you want to pay attention to just like making sure that you have some cards that can reliably trade off so that you can like use the rescue if you're going to be playing multiples of them. But uh, once you are reliably casting it, then you know it's uh, in some ways better birthday escape and really what a temp deck is looking for. Did I discuss the Lotho slash Lobelia treasure sub-theme and the best applications of it? I wouldn't really call two rares a sub-theme, and I think that it's, like, pretty hard to make treasures off of Lobelia, like it happens sometime, and I think Lotho is pretty medium, like, I've been unimpressed with the card. As far as how to best make use of it, I would not draft around it at all. I, Sometimes you include the cards in your deck, sometimes you get treasures and do normal treasure things with them, but I wouldn't like modify the rest of my deck and the expectation that I have treasures. I would barely even count them as a source for fixing. What does the ideal curve for this deck look like? The ideal curve, I think, is generally pretty low is the answer, but a good mix of twos and threes with uh, maybe like one or two ones, not a lot of ones, Frodo obviously being the best one by a lot, that's the rare, um, but then like among commons, Haunt being uh, better than Esquire. Yeah, I, I think if you shoot for like around 
six two drops um wouldn't be bad if you played like a few more or a few less you should be fine i think that looks like uh we've pretty much covered it so i'm gonna wrap it up there uh thank you very much everyone in chat for watching live and um, helping out with questions and uh thanks everyone else for listening i will be back next week same situation talking about uh more archetypes bye for now prepare for light speed